It's a first for the Timbers! I'm just so proud of this team. One game, one expert, and then on to the next one. I'm Richard Farley, and this is the Post-Match Podcast. So yeah, we're, we're recording now. Uh, it's always awkward because I have to do these introductions as if this is like yeah. a formal conversation, but uh, this is your first time on this podcast, Rupert. This is R- Rupert Fryer, who um, your main job is working for one of Gold.com's branded products, right? Brazil, The Brazil sure. Global Tour. But basically, you cover Brazil, Brazil full-time. Yeah, pretty much. And then you do a bunch of freelance work, uh, including uh-huh. for 442, where you've done a lot of work on uh, Brazil, Chile, Argentina throughout the tournament and done some really great stuff. Um, so I guess it's tempting to talk to you about Brazil, but I'm not going to because it seems cool. like Brazil is so far in the past at this point. Their contribution to Copa. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not. It's not been a great month. No, it's not been a great two years, in fact. But there we go. Yeah. Well, and they also took like a a B minus team to Copa, and we'll see. We'll see what they do in the Olympics. I'm uh, not sure they intended to take a B minus team to Copa, but yes, well, they kind of did. That's true. All the injuries kind of piled up, and people. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about Chile and Argentina. Let's talk about Argentina first. I think <clears throat> might as well get the big stories out of the way. Talk about Messi. Talk about everything else that's going on. I guess we have to start start with Messi. Everybody knows that as of now, he is I, I, he's considered retired from international soccer. Do you think that's going to last? I don't think it will. Um, I think it was kind of. I think it was something that he said in a heated moment. Um, Sergio Romero, the goalkeeper, seemed to suggest that he had said it in the heat of the moment and that um, everybody should calm down a little bit. But um, I think it probably was. I think it was a culmination of things. I think it's the culmination of the last uh, decade or so that he's played for Argentina. Although, having said that, the last three years have been, well, I was about to say they've been pretty good. They've been better, but obviously, <laughs> it's been three failed finals in three years, so they certainly haven't been good. Yeah. But um, but it seemed as if we, he was really building momentum and he was really building to something. And obviously, he had been fantastic in this in this in this competition up until the final. And then it kind of all, all fell apart. And of course, he missed the penalty, mm-hmm. and um, so he was left ejected by that in floods of tears. And um, I think he was yeah. He, I think he's very upset. <clears throat> pretty sick of, of a lot of the pressure that gets bundled on him and um, of course in the background is this whole thing with the with the Argentinian FA and so to what degree it's something of a protest um, I'm not sure uh, Messi isn't necessarily the easiest person to read hmm. yeah I can't blame him for being tired of everything you know the pressure the conversation around it the expectations because I'm tired of that conversation too and we've got it fired back up again because of that miss I just feel, Rupert, that people are really shortchanging Chile when they talk about, oh, Messi hasn't delivered in these last two finals. You look at the way that Chile has played him, you got to give them some kind of credit for being able to contain Messi over these two finals. Huge credit. Huge credit. I mean, overall, uh, certainly relatively speaking, if we look at the way that teams often try and fail to contain Messi, then I think they've done a fantastic job. There were moments, of course, because... Messi is, is so great that no one's ever going to be able to keep him quiet for 90 minutes, certainly not 120 minutes. And to that degree, um, I'm doing it now. I'm going back to Messi. But um, again, his frustration probably boiled down but at times of looking at some of those guys around him and just being like, come on, what else, what else do I yeah. have to do? I mean, there was a few times in finals now he's put he's put the ball on the plate for somebody. 
usually Gonzalo Higuain. <laughs> oh, poor, um, poor Gonzalo Higuain. Poor, poor Gonzalo Higuain. Oh, and I, feel, I, I felt very sorry for him this week. I think he's a fantastic player. Yeah. I thought he I thought he was absolutely superb at Real Madrid and I thought he really got shortchanged there. I mean, I may be in the minority, but at the time, I kind well, of no, thought, Real, Real Madrid I thought I'd rather... Have, loved him. Indeed, I mean, I, I thought he was... I mean, I... I would probably go. I, I did, in fact, go as far as saying at the time that I thought he was a better centre forward than Karen Benzema. Mm. And um, that season that the Pellegrini was there and they pushed Pep's Barcelona all the way, Higuain was the reason they did that. He was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I can't remember the stats offhand. It was what, four years ago now. But uh, he was in tremendous goal scoring form that year. And without mm. him, they wouldn't have got anywhere near Barcelona. Yeah. So, um,. I do, I do feel a little bit sorry for him, but um. So yeah, there there were moments in in these three finals, indeed, where Messi really did do something, or or at least where somebody else had a chance to do something for him, um, and that didn't take place. So I'm sure that adds to his frustrations. But of course, going back to Chile, I mean, it's mar- it's fantastic what they've done. Um, I think obviously everything changed in 2007 when Bielsa arrived. That was the real turning point for for Chilean football. Um, a turning point in their history, really, and um, th- that was the moment. But I mean, I think over three or four years. I mean, I remember the first couple of years that Bielsa was there. Chile with this marvelous little secret that we had, you know. Um, particularly in, in sort of the for the Western media. I mean, right. there, there was just a few of us who were who were all talking endlessly about Bielsa and this incredible Chile team and how much just bloody good fun out of the whole thing was. It was yeah. insane, just this weird like swarm of bees buzzing around. Yeah. It looked like they had 52 players on the field every right. time they turned up. Well, yeah, and no, it was extra- in, like It was before the world had kind of adjusted too, so he's playing like exclusively three at the back and pressing really high into the other of course. half all the time. And it was before, you know... It was, it was, it was, it was something quite, it was something new to lots of people. And of course, it was before the whole Bielsen thing had, had really taken off. I mean, that's where it, it truly happened. Right. There, I mean, obviously he, he had had an impact on people such as Guardiola and, uh, and such but this whole sort of endless line that we're seeing now of, of Bielsen disciples to varying degrees from like the most devout like Jorge Sampaoli to mm-hmm. people like Pep who, who obviously adjusted things and and brought his own style to the table but it was hugely impacted by, by, by sort of the Bielsen doctrine right. and all the way down to now like some Mauricio Pochettino and to a degree, Tata Martino, although his stock isn't necessarily hugely high right now. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. But he did. He had this huge impact that's obviously is permeated through, all the way throughout management across the globe now. And, and that's been a fantastic thing to see. But going back to, to that period, like I said, there was this great little secret and this wonderful team and we all enjoyed so much talking about them and telling people about them and what they were missing. But the whole time I had this nagging feeling of this is Bielsa, you know? Mm. Like Bielsa doesn't really win things. Um... I mean, I'm kind of an old romantic, really, but I think for me, it kind of only endears him to me even more, the fact that he doesn't win things, because it's like the margins between winning and losing are so fine. Yeah. And for the most part, you've got to do something else. I mean, only one team can win any competition at any time, right? Mm. And so you're left with however many, if it's a league system, you're left with another 19 or so teams mm. where they, they can't win, so you've got to do something else. Yeah. And Bielsa was always that guy who did something else. It's yeah. Like, okay, they might not win, but he's given us so much more than just winning or losing. But um, throughout that period, so we had tremendous fun, but I just had this niggling feeling that this is all they were going to be. They were going to be this quirky neutrals favourite. And the story, the, you know, the sequel would be out come South Africa. I mean, we, we all knew that everyone was going to fall in love with them at South Africa, but they would mm. still be seen as this sort of fun, quirky, plucky underdogs. Um, and that would be it. And um, 
it certainly looked that way when when BT Borgie came in to to succeed him and and I mean Borgie himself I'm, I'm a huge fan of too wonderful fun wonderful fun but some of the crazy th- I mean some of the crazy things he was doing as Chile manager I remember they went to Buenos Aires and I think he played five forwards or he certainly played two playing I remember he played two two out and out number tens in Valdivia Mati Fernandez mm. who for the last what four years Bielsa would only I think you I think he played one of them. But he played both of them together once in a friendly, which I think was against Mexico. This is a long time ago now. But apart from that, he always alternated the two. But Borgi came, Borgi came in and played them both and had this sort of sidle formation, one aside and I thought, okay, so this is it now. We're just going to be, Tilly are just going to be fun, but that's it. Yeah. And um, obviously, <clears throat> afterwards, Sao Paulo broke, broke out with Universidad de Chile and they were sensational also. Mm-hmm. And then everything just kind of came together and he, he too kind of, made slight alterations to the to the whole Bielsen model, um, not least is sort of like, they, they kind of slowed things down and have these sustained periods of possession which allowed everybody to catch their breath, not yeah. just the players who desperately needed it, but, it, but we kind of needed it at times too, um, those watching. And um, so yeah, he, he, made, he made little tweaks and, and then it all came together at 2015 and it was, it was marvellous. And um, to see them do it again this year with a new coach who certainly isn't, of, from the Bielsen school mm-hmm. um, just makes the whole thing e- e- even greater I think it's, it's been fabulous to, mm-hmm. to see them retain the title yeah but you did mention there there is something romantic about sticking to the ideal as Bielsa doggedly will and kind of acknowledging that you know maybe this isn't going to to win I like you said Bielsa doesn't have a trophy case full of hardware but he has <laughs> he, he has his legacy and he has his, he has his ideals I think that that's kind of it's kind of important to remember that there is there is something beyond those trophies because as these last two finals have sh- shown us you don't you there's only one winner you can even play just exactly as well as the team that ends up having the victory and having the legacy and then sh- the shootout ends up undermining you i think you know, you, you talked about you talked about Iguain and we feel sorry for him we feel sorry for messi feel sorry for for tata too I feel sorry for just the, the legacy of this Argentine team because it's remarkable to make it to three straight finals, and they've actually only lost one of those finals too. <clears throat> In, well, yeah, I guess so if you want to call it after nine. But at the same time, <clears throat> they've scored what zero goals? Yeah. In three in three finals, zero goals with, with with these attacking players. I mean, this generation has been top heavy really since what dating back to the, the first Olympic success that Messi had in 2008, right. I want to say. Um, <clears throat> and so it's always been really top-heavy. And and Argentina suffered this awful dearth of defenders for, well, dating back to probably to Roberto Ayala, was really the, Ayala, as they, as they say in Argentina, was really the, the last great Argentine defender. And since then, it's just been this bunch of misfits desperately mm-hmm. trying to defend. And I mean, Funes Mori's had an excellent season, but he kind of looked like a bit of a calamity for, for most parts of his career. Otamendi, I mean, he's uh, obviously a hugely expensive defender now, but that means much yeah but, as uh, last yeah, year he, shows mean, that that says exactly, that's going to be good on the field no with all due respect to Otamendi I don't need to beat anybody down but he's kind of had one good season his entire career really yeah, which happened at Valencia I mean yeah. it was only it was less than a couple of years ago he couldn't even get into the Atletico Manedo side in Brazil mm-hmm. so um, so yeah they've had this great dearth of defenders and so there's this great irony that that all three finals of Argentina have, have conceded one goal in those three games, two of which went to extra time, and not managed to score a single goal. Yeah. It's kind of bizarre, and and yeah, something you can't <clears throat> you can't really explain. Um, but again, you're going back to the whole winning and losing thing. I mean, 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, football is about. I mean, I think this might stem from I'm a fan of this tiny club here called Oxford United, and we really don't win anything ever. And um, and so I think that might have been might in some way explain my sort of romanticism for the game and constantly trying to find the exotic and something different. And, and looking beyond just winning and losing because, like I said, those margins are so fine and to just reduce everything to winning and losing just seems so reductive. So reductive in a football as expansive, as in a, a sport as expressive as football or soccer. Mm. You know, it's even worse over here, the sports culture, because, you know, I think with when I think about how people talk about whatever league your club happens to be in in England, there's an acknowledgement of the size of your club, what it's capable of, the players it's capable of bringing in. And modern football kind of transcends that a little bit, but there is this idea that the club is of a certain stature. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the one example I can, I think of when this comes to mind is my friend who's a Middlesbrough supporter. And when they got relegated Mm -hmm. last time, he was like, well, you know, at our core, we are kind of a a team that's more of a second tier team that stays in, goes to the first division a couple of times here it is all judged in terms of championships uh you'll you hear you know during nba off seasons or even with mls okay what are we doing to win a title if we don't win a title we're not successful it doesn't make any sense to me if you have a 20 team league you can only give out one title a year that means your team on average or teams are going to win on average one title every 20 years now that's not how it works out you always have one team that wins five or six so most of the teams in the league have to come to grips with some kind of success that doesn't involve titles. I think that's Indeed. what makes what um, I think that's what makes Bielsa more interesting. When you see what he d- did at his last stop in Marseille, how he was very successful at the beginning and then burned his players out, as has become his kind of pattern. I, I still think that's amazing for somebody to be able to drop, be able to drop in somewhere and completely change the identity of a group of players. And with Chile, that's actually persisted. Uh, I still think though. With all the talk we're doing of Argentina over these last couple of days, it just seems like Chile continues to be shortchanged within the global conversation. Nobody's really stopping to consider how great this team is or whether it is actually great. We've kind of just moved on to talking about the same things we usually do. Those things don't involve Chile. Indeed. I know. Um, but I guess Messi's shadow, the, Messi, the shadow of Messi casts across the world, world game now is so huge. And I mean, we also kind of live in this <clears throat> age of sort of, I mean, I'm keep going off on tangents, so you might have to bring me back. But I think we kind of live in this, this age of kind of almost like posts club supporting now, where we have people across, I mean, the game's expanded across the entire globe, and I think it's fantastic. And I mean, there are guys in. I don't know, sitting somewhere in Indonesia who know infinitely more about Manchester United than, you know, one of my friends who lives up in Manchester and, and goes to the stadium, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they spend their lives now. And it's wonderful they got access to so much information. But uh, but with that, with the growth of, 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 of um, soccer fans across the globe, I think we've also seen something which, I mean, to a degree, I think could probably be identified as something of an Asian phenomenon. I, th- I know it's, it's, it's big there, but I think it's now transcended that with, the likes of Ronaldo and, and Messi. So we have all these people who just support individuals. They just kind of, their their soccer team is Lionel Messi and that's who they love. And whoever Messi plays for, whether it's Argentina or Barcelona or he ever leaves Barcelona and goes somewhere else, they'll just follow him and just support him. And so I think that's something that probably brings keeps bringing us back to this conversation. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, going back to Chile, like I said, it's, it's been fabulous. It's been the culmination of a long, long period of work. Um <clears throat> And the the big concern this time around was with, I mean, after going 
I mean, Sampaoli was the, the perfect successor to Bielsa, really. I mean, obviously, Borgi came in between, but he was the perfect man to, 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 to take all of those things that they've been learning for so long now and, and to run with it. And not least, because, I mean, I remember, I think it was Defender Waro Ponce, I think it was, uh, who said uh, the thing with Bielsa is, I mean, Bielsa has this famous line, right, where he says, if football was played by robots, I'd win everything. Mm-hmm. Because and uh, which which is is marvelous and a wonderful thing for him to say of himself too, but um, it speaks volumes of the, the problems that he has. He seems to he seems to struggle socially. I think yeah, uh, at least from what I've been told from people who have worked with him and and going back to Walter Ponce, I remember he said I think it was him who said that um that he didn't speak to Bielsa. Bielsa didn't speak to anybody unless there was a soccer ball and he was telling someone what to do with a soccer ball. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to, for him to ever speak to anybody. He just didn't. Um, and Sao Paulo is one of the things that he brought, is that he would. He could speak to, to players as fellow humans, and he could speak to them on the training ground or share a joke with them um, or just, just run into them in the cafeteria and actually say something which didn't involve soccer. Um, so I think, I think that was a, a big leap forward. Mm. Um, but yeah, indeed, it, it's, 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 it's been this whole culmination of this work, and the big the concern coming in this time around was, was really twofold. One is that Pizzi certainly isn't um, of the Bielsen doctrine, not anywhere near the same level, same to the same level as San Paoli anyway. Mm. And so, how would he adapt to his team? It wouldn't be how would the team adapt under Pizzi. It would almost be how would Pizzi adapt to this team because they've yeah. been playing this way for so long now. This is the same generation. This is the same players who've been playing this way since 2007. Is that's not going to change? That's not going to change overnight. That's not going to change over the course of 12 months. It's just not. And he only arrived in January. So it's kind of how can can Pizzi fit into this um, this whole environment, which is pre-existent, which he's finding there because he can't rip it up. It's mm-hmm. insane. He's never going to do that. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think uh, there were some teething issues. I think he, I think after the first Argentina game, he had lost four of his first five games. I think I'm right in saying. Um, but after, and then after that, there's a couple of dodgy, <laughs> a couple of other dodgy uh, group games where, of course, they need about 98th minute penalty to get get through one of them. But then everything just kind of came together in that, that Mexico game, which was just obviously very outstanding. It's already one for the ages. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, it's not necessarily going to be like the 7-1, as they now call it, going back to Brazil. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's up there. It's going to be one of the great historical results of the ages because, I mean, lots of people by then had Mexico favourites for this competition. Yeah. Um, they, were pre- they pretty much had home support. I mean, you were there more, obviously. obviously. No, I was picking them um, to win the whole tournament. Close to the whole thing. Yeah, and they pretty much had home support, right? Yeah, That's how absolutely. it felt. Yeah. And, um, and to just blow them away like they did with, with what is now that classic Chilean style was just a mm-hmm. remarkable thing to see. But then I think the biggest victory, perhaps, for Pizzi was the semi-final, where um, what he, what, the way that he against Colombia, when Chile for so long now we've seen under San Paolo and under Bielsa, we've seen these these slight tactical changes where you can almost pinpoint something. Like, this is what changed the game. San Paolo did this, mm-hmm. he introduced this player in this position, and it won Chile the game. It changed the whole course of the match, and Pizzi had that against Colombia. I think it was the first time he really had that. There's uh, the fullback Fuenza Lida, mm-hmm. who <clears throat> was coming off into the tournament, not having had a fantastic time in his, in his career over the last year or so. He had gone to Boca Juniors and just hadn't got into the side, and um, so that spell was short-lived. And and that, so here he came, and Fuenza Lida is one of those, one of the others, uh, one of those Chilean players who are kind of less decorated. But for so long, these guys have been this whole Chile team has been so much greater than some of its parts. I think Pizzi had his moment like that in the semi-final with Colombia, 
where he just pretty much threw Fuentes-Aldea straight up as a, as a right-sided attacker. Mm-hmm. And Mauricio Isla, who Colombia was so preoccupied with because obviously he didn't defend particularly well and, and, and just bombs forward. And historically now that's where Chile get most of their width is from the, the, the full-backs who just bomb forward and, as they essentially adapt to something like a 2-4-4. Well, <clears throat> uh, Pitié essentially kind of did that. But just Issa, just, for the most part, just stayed where he was. And the left-back for Colombia, uh, Fabra, was so preoccupied with Isla, they just constantly forgot that Fuenzalida was even there. Mm-hmm. And by the time he had realised, Colombia were two down, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been um, been a really great moment for Pitsy because, <clears throat> like I said, it's something that the Chilean fans have kind of become accustomed to, and it's like, okay, we can kind of welcome this guy now. This guy knows what he's doing. He's, he, he's kind of adapting. He's, he can be, he, he looks like a Chile manager now. And, and that's that's been great for him because after the second game, I mean, an opinion poll in La Tercera, I think, said that 74% of Chile fans thought that Pizzi wasn't up to a job and should already be leaving. Mm. So, um, it's just so he's such the weird, weird nature of the tournament because between that second half against Mexico and the start against Colombia, that's probably the best football that we football soccer we saw during this whole tournament. That's yeah, undoubtedly. Around that, though, Chile was not that convincing, although I shouldn't throw out the final. They did a great job against Argentina, mm-hmm. obviously, to um, restrict them to... Did did Chile... I mean, Chile went most of that game without even a shot on target, though, so mm-hmm. um, it was very much about limiting Messi and the typical... Yeah. In a lot of well, ways, so, the typical performance we see whenever Messi comes up against the team. Yeah, and certainly after the red card. Um, yes. The red card really, cha- obviously, obviously changed the entire game. True, um, true. And even and even when when the Brazilian referee evened it up with another stupid decision, because I, I thought it was exceptionally harsh to send Marcelo <laughs> Diaz off for that. Yeah, um, it was kind of one of those where if that was his, if he hadn't been booked yet, and he kind of did it, you might think, okay, that's probably harsh, but fine, you're gonna give him a booking because he may have been trying to trying to stop the flow of play. But I mean, he just couldn't get out of the way. Yeah, there was. It seemed like he just couldn't get out of the way. It, um, so it seemed awfully. Didn't unfair. even need to blow. Like it wasn't. You could argue it wasn't even a foul. Uh, yeah, perhaps so. not. I mean, I mean, I think it was probably a foul. I think it was unintentional. It was mostly. I think it was pretty much unintentional. I think it was extremely harsh to send him off. But anyway, he did, and obviously that changed the whole complexion of the game. And then Chile had to ride out this great storm. And even when Rojo um, did well, the most Rojo thing that he does, <laughs> just does what he does, and got himself stupidly sent off by being overly aggressive, for absolutely no reason. That too, I thought, was a very, very harsh, harsh decision. Yeah. But by then, the game had just—that was the way that the game was going. Chile right. had pretty much they, they felt so hard done by, and they they had pretty much sat out their stall just to try and get an Argentinian player sent off. Right. Which, um, you know, it's kind of understandable. I mean, again, I think it's something that, particularly from from where I'm from in England, is something that's hugely frowned upon. <laughs> but elsewhere, I think it's part and parcel of the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so this was the environment the game was now taking place in. But yeah, it, right. it had a huge impact on the game and changed everything. I mean, we, we do these things like we focus so much on these tournament results when there's such small samples. And even within that sample, we get things like the final where somebody gets sent off early and then another person gets sent off mm-hmm. before halftime. Or we forget that Chile wasn't really that impressive over much of this tournament. And then Argentina went through this whole tournament and only allowed two goals and scored 18 in six mm-hmm. matches. All that stuff is going to be forgotten because of this bottom line and 
the bottom line really was just one team won a shootout over the other. Indeed. It seems so yeah. it seems so harsh the way that we do that. And perhaps that's your job and my job to make sure that the conversation doesn't go that way. But if we are hmm. successful in doing that, we will be the first people in the history of our profession <laughs> to ever get people to look at the bigger picture. People yeah, are gonna remember totally. people are gonna remember that Chile won two Copas in a row. They're gonna forget well, they're not gonna forget, but they're gonna undervalue the fact that those were one via shootouts. And they're gonna condemn this Argentina side, if not the whole generation of Argentina. Argentina players because they didn't win those shootouts. Mm-hmm. Two of them, yeah, two of them. And again, those those fine fine margins. And going back to poor Pepe Higuain, to him also. I mean, <clears throat> there was the one where I mean, obviously the, the chance against Germany when he was through, he had the chance in this game, and then in the last Chile game where Messi went on that barnstorming run, doing the Messi thing he does, and just went through everybody. And I think it was Lavezzi who, for once in his life, chose a really good pass. <laughs> and then Higuain came in uh, like a hundredth of a second too late. Yeah. and put it like a hundredth of an inch or whatever it was outside of the post, and that was it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, these margins are so fine, so fine. And again, that's why I think it's, <clears throat> personally at least, I think it's kind of reductive to constantly reduce football to winning and losing. Although at the same time, I guess that's why most people are there, right? Mm, that's true. I think the person I feel the worst for out of all the people that we've mentioned is uh, Tata Martino, because his job really, um, I guess... I guess it's hard to say it's on the line. Uh, you know, he off, he basically there was word that he was going to resign. Now that it looks like he's going to carry the team through the Olympics at this point, but people are really judging him as a bit of a failure, even though he's taken this team to the top ranked spot in the world. He's gotten them to two finals. He's got them within penalty shootouts of uh, ending this twenty three year drought that they have. On one hand, I kind of wonder what else he can do because I don't really see a lot of things that he's doing that are terribly wrong, but then I hear other people talk about it and they say, you know, he hasn't really created an identity for this team that goes beyond Messi has to win it for us. Mm. Yeah. Um, Again, that's that's probably fair, but I mean, what do you have to do when you've got Lionel Messi on your side to get your your team to a point where Messi has to win it for us? Barcelona would have possibly the greatest side we've ever seen and still, any of us have ever seen, ever, and it still came down to Whenever they didn't win, Messi didn't really do it. Right. Uh, Messi didn't really do it today. So he's always going to carry the burden, even more so in Argentina, because there's a team that's now, well, is now going to be at least a quarter of a century about a major international title. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was always going to be the case. And yeah, too, I too have some sympathy for Tata Martino, but I mean, God, you'd be playing three finals in a row and eventually you lose patience. I remember speaking to a number of Argentine journalists before the World Cup and just a bunch of friends in Argentina too before the World Cup final in 2014 and the overriding consensus seemed to be we've made the final you know finals are, finals again are fine margins if we lose a final okay we've lost the final but the goal was to make it to the final and that feels like a success mm-hmm. but now <laughs> they've had three of them and it really doesn't feel like a success anymore really mm-hmm. doesn't feel like a success anymore I mean, I mean before before the final Diego Maradona had said um, uh, win or don't, or don't come home I'm not sure how tongue-in-cheek it was. It's Maradona. You never really know yeah. if anything. He, what, you know, you don't really know, really know how true anything he says is. Right. But uh, it became like the the uh, the tagline for the whole final. It was trending on Twitter in Argentina. Everybody was typing, you know, hashtag win or don't come home. Um, and it's kind of like a, a strange fallacy because I don't think he realised uh, quite how accurate he would be, particularly in the case of the Messi. Because if Messi calls it quits now, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to see how Argentinians are ever going to welcome him back. I mean, he might be able to, be able to go back to Rosario if he goes to play for Mules, fine. <laughs> Elsewhere, I mean, he's going to be persona non grata, which is a great shame for 
obviously for someone who perhaps is the greatest player that, that the game's ever seen. No, very, very, very true. Uh, so if you were if you were brought in to clean up Alpha and you, you do that, but you also have to make some decisions about what to do with the actual squad, the technical staff, maybe you uh, provide some insight to whoever you hire as to who they should be retaining, what direction should they be going in, what would you do? I'd probably be on the phone to show Simeone, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Simeone needs... <laughs> that'd be a huge, <laughs> that'd be a huge well, kind of stylistic difference, but at the same time... Well, yeah. it would, yeah, but he's been... But, um, obviously, Simeone will be Argentina manager at some point. Yeah. There's no of, That seems to be of no doubt. And now you think, where's he going to go? The only It seems as if he's only really interested in coaching teams that he's to play for, not mm-hmm. least because I think that they're not giants who are expected to win. Yeah. Simeone, Simeone, I think, needs to thrive, will only really thrive in teams who seem to have their back against the wall. That's kind of how it's been throughout his career with Catania and Darren Bacchus. So the answer is, is like, you know, maybe the sixth grand day, but it's not, they're not in Buenos Aires. They're mm-hmm. not one of the five great teams. And Lassing are, but Lassing have got, you know, this whole <laughs> sort of, um, this whole complex of how they just really mess everything up all the time. Mm-hmm. And so everywhere he went, he kind of had that. And so, where does he go next? I mean, unless, again, unless it's maybe into Milan, maybe it'll push Lazio, but I think that even that would be a bit too much for him, for even him for even him to take on. Mm. Um, you kind of think, where? He's not going to go to one of the top, top clubs. And so, we know he's going to be Argentina manager at some point. Why not now? I mean, three finals seems like an awfully good time to bring in somebody who can thrive in that, that whole sort of... Um, that whole environment of our backs against the wall, we're really up against it now. Yeah. You know, let's all come together as kill or be killed. We're tired of losing finals. Let's bring in the guy <laughs> who's lost two of the last three Champions League finals. <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah, there is that too. But it would solve that identity problem. I, I, I don't even know if I like that argument. I mean, people have mentioned to me that, you know, the team doesn't have an identity beyond, you know, Messi is our focal point. That doesn't seem like a bad identity to me. I mean, it doesn't seem like a bad identity, yeah, indeed. If you, I, mean, yeah, I, I think it's kind of harsh to say that also. Um, Hajo Martino, I think. When I think that was a problem for Argentina, of course it was, um, and a dependence on Messi has has been a problem and is still a problem, really. But uh, I think going back to what 2012, when when he really got going and he and he scored 12 goals, I think it was in the calendar year to equal Batistuta's record. That's what Alejandro Sorella did. I mean, Sorella was a pragmatist, but he came in and and. Um, and really realise I've got no decent defenders. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to try and have to leave leave a top heavy, heavy team out there and try and give the Messi, Messi as much support as we can. Yeah. And he did that with obviously uh, Kuna Aguero, who's Messi's best friend, and Confidant, and um, Gonzalo Higuain. And he, he achieved all of that by dropping Di Maria back into midfield, which he later done for Real Madrid. And I've heard Carlo Ancelotti get huge, huge praise for, which yeah. of course I'd never want to take any praise away from a man as lovely as Carlo Ancelotti. Mm-hmm. He deserves all the praise he gets, but it was something that Savella did first. Yeah. Savella put uh, inserted the rear end for the team as a shutdown player. And not only that, but he stuck Fernando Gago alongside him. And, um, and, and just, just to try and give an outlet to Messi to try and put someone, could get someone in there who can just, who can, who can restrict Messi from coming back deep to get the ball by just taking charge of possession himself, and that's what he did. And it was a, he was able to get to get Messi on the front foot, and so or, or at least re- retrieving the ball on the front foot, where he could actually just go at goal instead of retrieving the ball with his back to the goal, some 40, 50 meters away. So that was um, a huge turning point. And from then, we've seen Messi get progressively better. Mm-hmm. Certainly in major competitions, I think. I think overall, you can look at the performance and say, 2014, he was 
undeniably unfit. There's no question about that. He was quite clearly conserving his energy throughout the entire tournament because he just didn't have enough in the tank. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he won player of the tournament, whether we agree with that or not, <laughs> whatever. But he, he he wasn't that good, but he played very he played well. It was certainly an improvement. And then come 2015, Copper was even better. And then this this Copper, he was even better again until the final. Mm-hmm. Until the final. Uh, and I, I know I've said this a couple times here, but you know, at some point when a team is you, you see these teams play more narrow than they do otherwise when they're against Messi. They play deeper. They constrict the midfield more than they otherwise do when they play Messi. Everything is about Messi, and at some point, you do have to have the other players step up. And to a certain degree, um, I guess that brings us back to Gonzalo Higuain. But there are there. There's only so much that somebody like Martino can do. There's only so much that somebody like Lionel Messi can do. He can each of these people can put the other players in a position to succeed, but if they're not going to succeed, then yeah, we're, we're, we're where we are right now. And yeah. that's why I just don't think it's it's fair at all to put any of this on Messi or Tata at all. No, I'd agree. Yeah, of course, football's the most collective of sports is one of the reasons it makes it the most important sport. Yeah, culturally specifically, yeah. it's such a it's such a, a an expressive sport. Yeah. And of course, it was all about the collective and to constantly boil down. And I mean, at time there would be times when the collective sole function is to get the best out of an individual. Mm-hmm. But still, but you know, they're still playing a supporting role. And if that if that role isn't support isn't sufficiently supportive, then you lose games and you lose finals. Yeah. And that seems to be what's happened here. So. Let's go back to Chile to kind of close this out because I wonder what's what's next for them. Obviously, they're going to have their sights on on Russia at this point. Uh, that's another two years on for this generation of player. Uh, so I kind yeah. of wonder how this generation yeah. is going to age over that time. Which is a concern. Which is certainly a concern. It's something I was writing about for for you at four four two today. Yeah. So um, not to make you repeat yourself. What you put <laughs> sure. On, no, but, no, please. Yeah, but no, it's easy. I can, I can just read it. Actually, <laughs> be fine. I, I would enjoy that. It was it's a, it's a really nice post. But um, for the people who are listening who haven't read that, sure. what's your what's your prognosis on La Roja? Um, well, yeah, they had they had the oldest team in the tournament. Um, they were like twenty five and a half, I think, was the average age. I think I worked out. To, I worked out today. They had, I think, they had four players who were under twenty seven out of their entire twenty three. Only four were under twenty seven years old, of whom only one made a single start in eleven, and that was Edu Vargas, who obviously finished top goal scorer. Yeah. So that's a concern. You know, where is the next generation com- coming from? Um, I think the positives for them are that that they've they now have this identity now have this way of playing it was something they looked at they, they've looked all, all all around the continent to try and find a way in which they should go about their business they've looked to to argentina they've looked to brazil they've looked to uruguay they looked to all the great powers and none of it really worked out and so when bielsa arrived he had this i, I think I, I said in the article it's a perfect storm really he just had this completely blank canvas with this really promising generation of players and so in, in came this style and it's been there it's been a present ever, presence ever since and so the generation coming through now they already know how they're supposed to play which is which is huge for any national team absolutely mm. massive um it's something almost unquantifiable i mean i'm an englishman obviously and the biggest problem with england is we never have any idea of what it is that we're supposed to do and we'll see that borne itself out again this time around um <clears throat> but we don't and now argentina uh, now chile do and all, all, all you know, all successful national teams. You, you see, that's that's the process they go through. Germany went through it after after their failings in the early part of the last decade. They just ripped up and started all over again. And so, their World Cup victory was like the sort of you know Bill Dungswoman climax, the coming of age story of this mm. this plan that they had put together. And Uruguay also 
Uruguay know what's expected of them. Tavares, you know, he, when when he came back, he for, so for the last de- more than a decade now, he's just had this sort of top, this straight top to bottom philosophy, which which permeates through every single age level in Uruguay. So everybody knows what's expected of them. Everybody knows what pretty much what formation they're going to play and how they're supposed to play. Mm. And thing, the great thing with Chile is they have that now. But yeah. not only do they have that, these two Copa America successes have given them a benchmark. They've given them idols. They've given them something to which they can aspire, something to attain to, you know. We are champions now, Tilly. When, you know, we went ni- we're at 99 years for a title. Where got, they got two of them now inside 12 months. And so not only do they have a, a stylistic identity, but they have, you know, something, you know, perhaps you know, slightly, well, I, guess, I want to say less tangible, perhaps more tangible than that, is they have champions to look at now. They have champions to look at now. And... Um, I think Bravo said that, which might have been a backhanded jibe at Argentina. I'm not really sure, but he just sort of said, "Chile are a lesson to everyone who believes in who who's, who always believes in a national team. You know, who waits. You have to wait and wait and keep believing and keep believing, and it will come." Well, for Chile, it's finally came, and like buses, you know, waited 99 years and two came along at once, and so they've got that now, and and that's been that's been huge. That's something. That's something really, really, really big for for future generations to be able to look back at the previous generations. And say, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This mm. is this is this is where we're supposed to aim. Yeah. And um and and that's hugely encouraging. Yeah, I really like how you describe that. It made me think about how much, you know, uh, Spain's great team was influenced by Barcelona and the talent, not mm-hmm. only the talent but the style that came through there. And then Germany, as Bayern Munich started to accept some of those principles that were successful, they were very influenced by that too. I think it's very interesting because we were talking about really one man who was kind of dropped into Chile and changed things. Mm. And now you see teams in the Chilean league, they just automatically have some of the principles that Bielsa brought in that I don't know enough about the Chilean league to know what it was like before, but you do see that influence, that cultural influence all over their football down the ladder. And so the next players that are going to come through, they're not going to have to learn this. This is just going to be part of their identity. It is so interesting that this Argentine just got dropped in and it really kind of just changed the identity of a whole culture. It's fantastic. And, and again, it harks back to what we were saying previously. I mean, Bielsa doesn't have titles, but so what? That's not what he's here for. Yeah. Bielsa's not here for titles. He's here for something bigger than that. He's here to show people something bigger than that. And yeah, he can be dogmatic and yeah, he's, you know, too idealistic and quixotic and only has, he has to do everything exactly his way. Like he'd never be happy if he won something unless he won it without, you know, just by going, staying 100% faithful to whatever his idea is at the time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only way he'd ever be happy about winning something anyway. He, he you know, he has to do everything else and way. So, so, you know, but look at what he's given Chile. It's, I mean, it's unquantified. It's incredible what he's given Chile, what he's given an entire nation, what he's given an entire, you know, an entire football in history. When he left, they had a, they were calling him, you know, San Bielsa, San Marcelo, and they were they had an online, I remember they had an online uh, a website where you could go on and light candles for Bielsa and write a little message. And there was like last I can't remember now, but last I looked, there was well over a million when I when I was writing about his departure at the time. It's just incredible what he's given them. And again, yeah, I mean, he's he's given them something more than. More than titles, really, because as you said, he's he's laid the foundations now. For, he laid the foundations for everything that's come afterwards, and these titles really are his titles too. If you want to get in touch with the show, look up our page on SoundCloud.com 
We're really trying to funnel everybody there. And if you leave a comment on one of the podcasts, I guarantee you I will respond to it. If you don't want to go to SoundCloud, hit me up on Twitter at at Richard Farley, and I'll be sure to get back to you and answer your feedback about these early shows. And if you want to be on the show, if you're one of my friends out there that I've met over the years that's still covering these games, just drop me a DM and drop me an email. We can get you on the show as soon as possible. The whole point of all this is to talk to you some more. We get a few listeners along the way, the more the merrier. Both songs that you heard on this podcast are available at freemusicarchive.org where you can get all kinds of free music for your audio projects. The opening song is by a band called Monk Turner and it's part of this huge rock opera based on Greek gods. It's Zeus's song and it's called Oh Yes You Will. And then the song you're hearing under my words right now, it's from Tigerberry. It's called Get Out DCV. Pretty emo stuff. <laughs>